0: This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Books, presenting Assured by Greg Gilbert, a book on discovering grace, letting go of guilt, and resting in your salvation. Learn more at bakerbookhouse.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. If anything distinguishes evangelicals from other religious groups, it's Bible study. And yet you wonder sometimes if it's something we like to talk about more than do. Unless it's debating things like creation, there's it's always a favorite pastime for evangelicals of all ages. Jen Wilkin is a gifted Bible teacher and veteran advocate for biblical literacy in the church. And she's not afraid to tackle the hard topics, which start on the very first page of Scripture and continue all the way through to the end from Genesis revelation. Wilkins' latest Bible study published by Lifeway is God of Covenant, a study of Genesis 12 to 50. She joins me on the Gospel Coalition podcast to talk about Genesis, Bible teaching, parenthood, Christian education, and everything else we can cram in. Thank you, Jen, for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on, Colin.
0: (laughs) Well, Jen, you've been teaching the Bible for years, but not always in front of a camera or in a large crowd of women. Uh, What was your first experience teaching the Bible?
1: Oh, gosh, my very first experience is probably during college. I taught a small Bible study to a group of friends, Um, and I don't know that I did a very good job of it, but it was my first attempt, and I remember we did go through a book of the Bible. We did Philippians. And uh, it wasn't until I had gotten out of college and was um, living in our first community in Houston and became a member of a church there that I started teaching in a more formal setting. But yeah, started in a living room with some girls in college.
0: When did you know it was something you wanted to do with your life?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was was probably... After my first child was born, I attended my first organized women's study at the church and um, I thought, oh, well, this is an interesting uh, environment. I hadn't really given much thought to and, and, and I was uh, put in, in charge of a small group and so I was supposed to lead the discussion and I dominated the discussion. I monopolized it and, um, and one of the women who was leading poked her head in the door one day and was like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I thought, oh, shoot, they're going to fire me. They're going to send me home. <laughs> and um, she said, hey, have you ever thought maybe you have a teaching gift? And so um, I think, you know, my earlier experiences were just felt more like facilitating a discussion because it was in a living room. But I had, in fact, been teaching instead of facilitating. So basically, I'm the worst small group leader you could ever want to have. <laughs> um, and I knew that I could teach things. Like I knew that I enjoyed um, Being on the platform explaining something and then it felt comfortable to me, whereas it was terrifying to other people. But in terms of teaching the Bible, I think it took me a little time to connect that that was my sweet spot, that that was the thing that was just going to become like a compulsion almost
0: for me. One of the things that you're known for is being able to encourage people to think about their Bible study and not merely to just feel and to emote how they react to what they're encountering in there. How did that perspective and that sort of calling, how did that coalesce for you?
1: Well, uh, I became the women's ministry director at my first church out of college. Eventually, I got into that spot. And one of the things that I was responsible for was vetting the curricula that were being used in anywhere between 12 and 14 women's Bible studies that were going on in any given semester. And at that point, I began to see that women in particular, but I would say in, over the last 10 or 15 years, it's not just women. But at that point, women in particular were being resourced almost entirely at the feelings level. And I had come through just a different environment, just education-wise. I grew up in, first of all, in a family with four brothers where it was the best idea wins and we don't really care how you feel, right? And so I enter into these female spaces with a whole different paradigm for how discussion happens and how learning happens. And I kept thinking to myself, why is it that we think that women are not able to think? We we seem to think that they're just a ball of emotions that needs to be expressed.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, and then found my way, honestly, into a preset Bible study at one point. And that was a place that connected what I had learned as an English major in college with, with the Bible. Uh, they were giving people tools to become more proficient at handling the Bible on their own, which doesn't mean that we don't. Uh, handle the Bible in community and under teaching, but that we should come into those discussions having spent some time in the text ourselves and doing some work. And that was so appealing to me because it was not currently being offered on a broad scale to women in particular. Uh, and so I would started trying to write my own materials that were capturing the best pieces of an inductive Bible study, but perhaps making them a little more accessible to the average church attendee and then combining them with, with teaching that was bringing the text to life.
0: You mentioned one person who helped you to realize and to understand that gifting there. Are there some other mentors who helped you as you learned to study the Bible and then ultimately then to teach it? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I was was mentored from a distance by R.C. Sproul. Um, We used to set aside money and save so that we could go to the Ligonier Conference when it would swing through town, and we listened to his tapes through his tape ministry, And I would say that his teaching style had a profound impact on me because he was so good at taking these profound truths and then putting them into simple speech for the average um, listener, and without sacrificing any of the quality of what it was he was wanting to communicate. And so that was very impactful to me just in terms of getting ideas uh, into the hands of people. But then I did have a mentor, uh, Pat Connor, she's still a dear friend, who helped me develop more than just a love for teaching, but a love for the people that I was teaching. And that was a big connection point that I needed to make because it's not enough to be a lover of theology. You have to love people who need that theology or you're going to communicate it in ways that are unloving. And she was uh, so great at helping humanize the teaching task Um by helping me to see how, you know, you can teach this doctrine, but you're teaching it to people who are going through this situation or that situation. And so how will you teach it in a way that it gives life versus, um, you know, bearing bearing them down under even a greater weight?
0: Let me shift gears a little bit, but stick generally, though, within the category of Bible study. You and Jeff had four kids in four Mm -hmm. years. Wondering, especially in those early years, what spiritual life looked like as a family, maybe for you specifically, and what role Bible study played during that time. Well, you know,
1: Colin, we insisted on getting up and gathering every morning for hymn singing, and then we would um, speak words of grace over one another. No, I'm completely kidding. (laughs) (laughs) For a number of years, and I would say family discipleship. So what I've learned uh, as the kids have now grown up and, and moved away when your kids are little, you have a high frequency of, of opportunities to have a have a devotional time, but you're going to have a low amount of depth that you can get into, right? You're gonna when your kids are little, you're gonna you're gonna have a prayer that you say together, you might talk about one thing before bedtime, and it probably happens almost every night of the week because in, at least in our case, we didn't have much of a life at that stage. And as yeah. they get older, The frequency of times that you're having those kinds of conversations formally is dropping, although I believe that informally you begin to just have them as a matter of course. They just become sort of the language of your home, hopefully. Um, But you have fewer sort of scheduled times where you're sitting down as a family to talk about those things, but you're able to achieve much more depth in those conversations. So I would say in the early years, we were uh, repeating prayers together, and then as they got older, teaching them to sort of own those prayers and to involve different aspects, praying for one another. And by the time everyone could read, we started um, asking the kids to come, having read a portion of whatever book we were going through, and they were supposed to bring two observations and two questions. And that would pretty much take up all of the dinner time conversation for that night. Um, And then over time, I would say, by the time they were seniors in high school, um, around that age, we weren't even necessarily having a scheduled time anymore, but it was just a matter of conversation to talk about spiritual things together.
0: Well, I think we could imagine a number of different myths of Bible study related to parenting there, but taking the perspective out a little bit, what would you say is the biggest myth you commonly hear from American Christians when it comes to studying the Bible?
1: Oh, definitely that it should be easy. Yeah, mm. we think it should just mm. because God wants me to know him, um, I should just be able to open the Bible and it will yield itself up to me with no effort on my part. Uh, you know, we have uh, an understanding of how the Spirit speaks to us through the word on the page, but we build some assumptions around that, that, um, that it will just magically happen and uh, and yet it's in uh, I believe it's in First Peter where um, Peter talks about how we're to crave the pure milk of the word like newborn infants. And it's a it's a nursing reference. And I always bring it up in rooms of all men to make them incredibly uncomfortable. But, <laughs> but you know, anyone who has firsthand experience with nursing knows that it's a natural thing and it's a necessary thing. But it isn't an easy thing. It, it's a it's an acquired skill. Uh, for the, for the baby, and the same is true for um, the Christ follower. The Bible is natural and necessary. You can't imagine anything that's more natural and necessary for our development. But it it is still a skill that we acquire um, in order to to grow and to flourish. And. The same is true with Bible study. It's not that there aren't things that you can or may be able to take immediately from the text, but it's that there's so much more that you can take from it as you learn and grow in the discipline of, of coming to the scriptures.
0: It makes me ask a dangerous question. <laughs> um, so Just preparing you. Preparing you. <laughs> I know. What could, what could go wrong? There's nobody listening to this, so don't worry about it. Just you and me. Um. What uh, we, we assume that the best way, like the more you read, the better off you are. Go through your daily plan, go through your yearly plan, all that sort of stuff. Is it possible, though, for that in some ways? you know i'm avoiding being hyper spiritual here that's why this is dangerous (laughs) that that could actually discourage you if for example you end up reading the same things over and over and over again but don't develop at all in your comprehension Mm -hmm. um one of the problems that i run into is that the way my mind works especially i try to use the same print bible always because there are so many tactile ways that my memory will go to a certain place on a page um, and then it'll remember, like, I, I can tell you where on there. And that really helps me with retention. But the problem is it gives me another another issue. And that issue is that my mind tells me, oh, you know how this story goes. Right. And you just jump over it. And so I may read and read and read. And in some ways it actually discourages me sometimes because I'm not developing at all. And then sometimes I'll just invest a little bit of time in some kind of aid or resource that will take me deeper mm-hmm. actually it's interesting jen the best way for me to retain is to teach Oh, totally. because when i have to teach it all of a sudden i force myself to read a totally different way and i notice a million different things oh, yeah. so so the dangerous question is is it possible that reading the bible sometimes in certain ways could discourage you
1: Well, I think you're asking a question that has to do with diagnosis of where we have been spending most of our time. And so it may be that in your case, you've done a lot of just Bible reading and not a lot of deep dives. Uh, uh, What is more commonly the case is that neither the Bible reading plan or the deep dive has been attempted. But instead, it's been all topical or devotional type resources.
0: Right. And so
1: all four of those things are of benefit to us. My focus happens to be on the deep dive portion. And the reason that I put my focus there is because while all four of those things are beneficial, I'm always asking myself, where is the current lean in the church? Like what is the thing that we most gravitate toward and how can I help course correct so that we don't fall too far to one direction? And uh, almost without exception, what I find is that people have, they started by dipping their toe in the water on topical studies. And then they devolved into a pattern of doing only topical studies. And and topical studies are meant to be layered on top of Bible reading plans and, and deep dives, uh, having a, just a firsthand knowledge of the text. And so depending on what environment you've been in, it's possible that maybe all you've done are deep dive Bible studies, although I haven't met a lot of those people. I do hear that they're out there. It's possible that you've only done devotionals or it's possible that you've been so fixed on reading plans that you haven't given enough time to other other approaches. And so I I, I, rather than say here is the right way to do it. I always want to ask people um, do an inventory of where you've been spending the bulk of your time and ask if you might need to implement another tool.
0: Yeah, I would say there's two kind of great leaps forward that I've had in my in my Bible knowledge. And the first of them, and just understanding of God through his word. The first was in college. I was on a crew summer project and just had a lot of time that was relatively undistracted in an affirming environment to simply read the Bible. Just one of those old, you know, just little, I mean, nothing fancy handout kind of thing and just digesting it there. So just getting familiar with the contents. And the second time was the first time I went through, I think I probably did modified McShane Mm -hmm. plans, Um, but I did that right before going to seminary. Worked out really well because then it bled into the kind of biblical theology I was learning from Don Carson and Graham Cole and others. But the McShane study reinforced the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that plan. And so it has made a difference. I mean, you, you, there's no there's no substitute for simply knowing the content, right. just having it there, just reading it. And like you said, not just dipping in on that basis. But it seems like at some layer, insofar as it's possible for us, we have to continue to challenge ourselves. Well, sure. Literarity um, breeds
1: contempt. Uh, I would, in this case, yeah. it just breeds boredom. Yeah. Uh, we yes. and 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 this is actually um, one of the reasons that I'm so committed to revisiting books of the Bible that people kind of think they know, um, because yeah. <clears throat> we have you know we have like a felt board understanding of a lot of these books and we don't even realize that we've heard them taught and in some cases. So I'm a little fastidious about this. I'm not prescribing this, but I don't like to make notes in my Bible because mm. I fear that when I go back and read that passage again, I'm going to duck my eyes over to that note and remember the sermon that I heard over it, and then not push myself to read anything additional into the text. I'll always hear that one sermon over and over again.
0: I stopped doing that, Jen, for the same reason.
1: And I get that people's brains work different ways. Like, I would never say, don't write in your Bible, but for me personally, I knew that I didn't want to only always remember that one teaching that I had heard.
0: Yeah, yep. No, I think um, that makes a lot of sense. You've um, obviously, at this point, written a number of Bible studies. You've now finished with the entire book of Genesis, one of those books that we think we're familiar with, especially in that felt board way, and in particular, those early chapters. Um, Explain to us what your writing process for a Bible study looks like, including how you choose the book that you want to teach. Just how do you how do you project out those kinds of things? And I mean, because when you're committing to teach something like Genesis Mm. and to write a Bible study on all of Genesis, Mm. that's no small undertaking. Well, Genesis
1: is a no-brainer, right? Because it's the first book in the Bible, and it's the one where all of the themes that are going to be carried throughout the rest of the Bible are introduced. I say that it's a no-brainer, but also I had never studied it until I set out to teach it. I'd never studied the entire thing. And so I don't think that we frequently teach it. And that's related to another issue in the church. And that is just that we don't often allocate enough time in church calendars to cover books that are much longer than five chapters. And um, Mm -hmm. the first 14 books of the Bible, of those first 14 books, there's only one book that would lend itself to a four to six week study. And that's the book of Ruth. And I would imagine that most of the women in our churches have studied that book multiple times. Uh, But if you think about the most heavily traveled books in the Bible in terms of Bible study, almost without exception, they're the shorter ones that fit neatly into a low expectation of what people will opt into. And so people have studied Ephesians multiple times. But when are they going to set aside time to do 50 chapters in Genesis? And so I, I really wanted to pull... The women who were doing my—all of the studies that I publish are coming out of my on-the-ground teaching environments. And I knew that the women that I was teaching, um, they felt like they knew the New Testament really well, but they were fuzzy on the Old Testament. But the reality is that if you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't really have a depth of understanding on the New Testament, because the New Testament writers are wanting to point you to Old Testament ideas constantly— So I wanted to get the women in my study in my living room, honestly, at the time that I wrote this, um, I wanted to get them into those most foundational stories and passages so that the rest of the Bible would come alive for them in a way that it perhaps hadn't yet
0: well, and how did, how have you seen that happen? What what are some of those moments in Genesis in particular that really make people's eyes open when it comes to the character, the self-revelation?
1: Oh, I mean, there's so much just in Genesis 1 through 11, just the creation account. One of the things in the creation account that I think was most revelatory is they were all familiar with the the passage that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But once you start studying the creation account and you start to piece together, oh, wait a minute, Paul uses that term new creation with a lot of intent, like he he would have expected that he would queue up your ideas of that first creative act in Genesis one and then you start to be able to see how all of these uh, imagery, the imagery around light and darkness, fruitfulness and multiplication, and um, all of the other themes, the uh, separation of, of waters from waters and, and day from night, and how all of these themes are showing up um, in in the way that we think about the church and in the way that we think about ourselves, that if I'm a new creation in Christ, I have been brought from darkness to light. I've been called to be separate and set apart. Uh, the result of that creative work in me is fruitfulness and multiplication. It's ruling and subduing, and ultimately there will be rest. And so that that for a lot of the women was just like, oh my goodness, this has been here this whole time. Um, but because we're only living in the New Testament often, we haven't connected that all of these words have been chosen with great intent to point us toward the these big stories.
0: It seems like a, a theme for your God of Covenant study from Genesis twelve to fifty is Genesis eighteen fourteen. The question is, anything too hard for the Lord? How do you find that to be an appropriate theme verse for Genesis twelve to fifty? Oh my
1: goodness! I mean, Genesis twelve through fifty is taking us through all of the Spanish soap opera stories, the <laughs> lives of the patriarchs, and you read their stories, and at the you're simultaneously grateful that they are being humanized. And grateful that God just perseveres. You know, it's just it's story Mm -hmm. of His faithfulness, uh, no matter what these people do, Uh, and that's a, a huge reassurance for the for the believer. And and then again, the question is anything too hard for the Lord on a very just individual level. I mean, it's a question for the church certainly, but on an individual level, it is a question we will all face if we haven't faced it already, and. Uh, we find it answered with quite a bit of finality in the gospels when the birth of jesus is announced and the angel says for nothing is impossible with god and so again it's one of those situations where we go back to this earliest these earliest pages of the bible and find that this tension is being set up for us this very good foundational question is being asked and it's being answered and then it's ultimately being
0: answered in christ I can't resist uh, this question which was off script. Uh, those are the best ones, right? Well, well, question see. asker. <laughs> you are in Dallas? Yes. Yeah. How much when you're starting with a place like Genesis do things like major theological systems (laughs) come into play when you're trying to teach a book like Genesis?
1: Well, they certainly do. And in fact, that was the number one question that I would get when people heard that the study was coming out. It was, well, what position Mm -hmm. are you going to take on the age of the earth? And uh, my answer is that I'm not. Uh, I'm going to give you what the most commonly held views are that we would say fall under orthodoxy. And then it's actually not my job to solve that for you. My job as someone who wants to handle the text correctly is to ask and attempt to answer the questions that the text is interested in asking and answering. And Genesis is profoundly disinterested in asking the how question of creation it is deeply interested in answering the question of why and who. And so it's faithfully establishing that God creates and that he does so for his glory and that he does so in an orderly manner. And so those are the questions that we're going to spend time on because what I have found so often in any discussion about Genesis is we get so mired down in arguing about what is really a secondary consideration, although I know people will take issue with that, um, that we miss what the primary thrust of the text is. And it's fine to have a strong opinion on on the age of the earth. I, I don't share mine because the second that I choose one of those and articulate it, I've given half the room permission to ignore whatever else I say because they want to write me off because of that. And I actually believe the text is extremely beautiful in in so many other ways without even getting into that discussion um, that we should be able to, uh, regardless of what our church background is or our position on that, we should all be able to come to this text and ask, what can everyone agree is beautiful about it? And so that's the way that we...
0: Focus the uh, study. Well, and a great, great example of where in-depth Bible study can benefit, um, in part, when you br- when you're able to bring together some of the other considerable aids that we have, and you're able to compare Genesis from some of the other contemporary literature, yeah. it really sheds a lot of significant light on what's different uh, with that, which often then shows us what the, you know, the 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 purpose right. is. Right of that of that writing what questions it is trying to answer um so that's one of the things i i teach on christ and culture a number of different places and i don't think people give proper attention to how conditioned they are when they come to scripture yeah. none of us can avoid that but that we impose so many different things on scripture even when we come to it from with an orthodox yeah. intent or a conservative intent yeah. And uh, again, that's not altogether bad. In some sense, it's unavoidable. But I think we can be ignorant of it when we say, I just believe the Bible. Right. You're like, eh, except for all of these unspoken theological assumptions and structures that you are imposing here, and all these questions that you're asking and demanding of the text that actually the text is not trying to answer right. for you, or at least in that way. Yeah,
1: it's a so, challenge.
0: Okay, a couple, couple final questions. One that I know is near near and dear to your heart, uh, big picture here. Um, evangelical churches are notoriously faddish, unfortunately. Sunday school, for many years, that was the rage. That was an innovation at one point. <laughs> Vacation Bible school, likewise. Small groups. I wonder, rather than just following whatever seems to work at the church down the street and that we should copy help us to understand how we can reclaim Christian education as the proper calling of the local church.
1: That's a really big question. And it's one that we've been trying really hard to answer faithfully at the village. Um, you know, the most recent trend, probably at least in a lot of the churches that I have, um, contact with has been a move to, to place the full burden of discipleship on, on small groups, whether you call them community groups or home groups or whatever. And, um, So that's a that's a an organic ministry model and organic ministry models are are good for many things. They are very tough as educational environments. And uh, the funny thing about Sunday school is like when we all dumped off Sunday school, uh, arguably it was because it was no longer accomplishing what it had accomplished initially. But what it had accomplished initially was it removed as many barriers to entry for people to sit in a, a learning environment. Uh, and then it sort of raised the bar on what it asked of them while they were there. Uh, and so at the point that Sunday school was being offloaded by churches, it it it, it had turned more into just, um, you know, surface level discussions around a curriculum that we had gotten from our denomination or something like that. But the structure itself was something that was actually lifted just from any, any education system. So I think what we're hoping to do at the village is reclaim what we call... Um, dedicated active learning environments. So their their primary stated purpose is learning, whereas in a community group or a home group, often the primary stated purpose would be community. Uh, so it's not that we don't want to have community in these environments, but we're just not going to make it the highest stated value. So we're trying to carve out space for people to think about the text, um, but not just to think about it, but to so we want to develop thinkers, but we also want to develop people who are workers in those environments. In other words, um, they are doing some of their partnering in the work of learning. And the most common spaces that we see in churches today are passive learning environments. And it's not just churches, it's podcasts and it's books or whatever. It's anywhere that you're sitting and here receiving what someone said about the Bible. But you yourself have perhaps spent little to no time in the text before you hear teaching over it. So what we're looking to reclaim are spaces where you spend time wrestling with the text yourself around some good um, sets of tools, and then you discuss what you've been learning uh, with your peers at a thought level. So not a feelings level, but at a thought level. I mean, the feelings part will come, but it needs to come at the right place in the process. And then you sit and hear teaching from someone who is gifted and equipped to teach but you do that only after those first two steps have taken place, because that way you have had to flex your own uh, muscles around this. And, and you just you hear teaching so differently when you hear it over a passage that you're familiar with uh, or that you've had to wrestle with than you do when you just hear teaching over a passage that's read before the teaching occurs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, that, uh, I mean, that's an inspiring model. It's one that my own church is going through, and it reminds me we need to swap some notes at some point. But that's, we're we're actually moving a little bit more toward something of these learning environments that you're describing right there. And one of the things I've done is tried, I mean, it's hard in a Sunday school kind of context. Some people, like you can tell them that they have homework. I I have have a hard time enforcing that for any number of different reasons, but you're exactly right. When you come in cold to a fairly complicated and time constrained situation, Mm -hmm. um, discussion, you can gain some things, but not nearly as much. If you're actually preparing your and mind. And you won't,
1: retain, you won't that. retain the same amount either. Yeah. And so that's what, I mean, I, my favorite thing, you know, I teach lots of places, but my favorite place to teach is, is in that study in my local church because they come so primed for the teaching because they spent a whole week um, asking and trying to answer some hard questions and they're ready to have the, they want me to, to relieve the, the tension that's been built up. And so I can do so much more in the teaching time. They can do so much more through the teaching time. It's really, it's really satisfying. But in order to have those environments work, you have to have structure and you have to have predictability around it. Um, in order to get, because what what we have to do is we have to earn people's trust that that if they opt into this environment, it's going to be worth their discretionary time investment. And I think that the false message that the church has told itself is, "Oh, our people won't do that. Like, like they're they're everybody's busy. I hear this all the time. Everybody's busy. Um, the people in my setting, Jen, you just don't understand my context. Our people won't give more time to the church than they already are. And I just I I I don't see that as playing out in, in my setting. But I would just say people have discretionary time and, and they give it." They give it lots of places. They give it to whoever they know they can trust to to make it worth their while. Uh, they trust their personal trainer with their time because they know exactly what they're yeah. getting and what it will yield. And they know exactly when it meets and how it's going to happen. And so the more that the local church sort of uh, rouses its collective memory around giving structure and predictability and, and accountability in its learning environments, the more we're likely to reclaim some of this precious discretionary time. Uh, and devote it to the purpose of of discipleship.
0: Amen. Um, last question. I like this one. I got to credit my colleague Betsy <laughs> Howard for this question. <laughs> if you could choose one character from the book of Genesis to be on staff with you at the Village Church, which one would you choose and why?
1: I would choose Joseph.
0: Oh, that's the easy <laughs> one. Them. Okay. I wanted to. I wanted to see what you would do with. Uh, I don't know, with Abraham, but uh, that'd be kind of scary. Yeah, hey, no, I wouldn't trust no, Abraham.
1: No, the way Abraham kept sending Sarah into exactly. Black and Pharaoh. No, uh, no. <laughs> the thing I love. Yeah, I love. Jo- now the problem with Joseph is he'd be constantly Jesus juking you in the office. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, he's just dreamy. I mean, he's great. He um, he's. There are so many parallels between his character and and Christ. And uh, he's humble, and he flees from sin. And um, he, you know, he ends up he 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 is he's humbled, and then he's exalted. And then there's bread for the world because of his position. And oh, I mean, in that whole last part where, he keeps breaking down and crying when his brothers are there, and he's just great. I like that guy a lot. I don't know that—honestly, I don't know that he'd make a great co-worker, but—, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but He, he could really run the whole place, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be qualified. <laughs> he managed an entire empire, yeah, I suppose. True. That's true. That would be it fine. He'd to
1: have some administrative skills that most churches would benefit from.
0: <laughs> that's true that's true as your executive pastor he'd probably excel uh feast or famine you'd be in good hands with him tell me that's not the first time you've called him dreamy i'm pretty sure that's not a first time there so that was uh that was not Double subtle entendre
1: there the dream
0: exactly okay so not not subtle but entirely appropriate <laughs> My uh, my guest on the Gospel Coalition podcast has been Jen Wilkin, our latest Bible study published with Lifeway, God of Covenant, a study of Genesis 12 to 50. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org donate.